0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Okay, so thank you everyone for bearing with us. Uh, So today, uh, as I hope you know, we have a conversation with novelist, historian, uh, and publisher Jane Johnson. So we're very excited to have you all the way from Cornwall. Thank you again, Jane. Um, So the library has another great program for you. And uh, we will be talking about Jane's uh, latest novel, historical novel, uh, The Seagate, which was fantastic. So she will tell us more about it. And uh, thank you very much also to Adria at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Thank you, Adria. So to begin with, I'll share a condensed bio. Jane Johnson is a novelist, historian and publisher. She is the UK editor for George R. R. Martin, Dean Kuntz, and others. She has written several novels for adults and children, including the best-selling novel The Tenth Gift. Writing under the pen name Jude Fisher, she has written the companion books to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movie trilogies. Jane is married to a Berber chef she met while climbing in Morocco. She divides her time between London, Cornwall, and the Anti Atlas Mountains. Connect with her on Twitter at Jane Johnson Baker, B A A R, or visit her website at janejohnsonbooks.com. Welcome, Jane. Thank, Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, what time is it over there in Cornwall? Just gone six over here. Oh, okay. So so dinner time. You've got some light. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on a thoughtful and sweeping uh, family saga. Uh, So first, a very intriguing bio that I've just read. Could you please tell us about writing the companion books uh, to Peter Jackson's (laughs) Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movie trilogies?
1: Well, that was an amazing time. I cannot believe that 20 years have passed. I mean, it's just ridiculous since those movies first came out. And I... I was the Tolkien publisher at the time. Um, I was in charge of repackaging and uh, publishing all the backlist books, all the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all the books that were on what we call the Tolkien list. Um, And as part of that job, I had commissioned the artists Alan Lee and John Howe and Ted Naismith to illustrate uh, Middle Earth. Um, including the uh, centenary edition of The Lord of the Rings with all Alan Lee's beautiful colour plates in it. And little did I know, but uh, Peter Jackson was using all this artwork to persuade New Line Cinema to let him make the movie trilogies. <laughs> so, That's great. So it was amazing. I got this phone call out of the blue from New Zealand and it was Peter Jackson saying, um, would you like to come down and see what we're doing with your book? <laughs> um, and you know how can you resist that sort of invitation? So I went as Tolkien publisher, as Jane Johnson Tolkien publisher, and was just completely swept away by by seeing what they were doing with with the adaptations. Uh, it was just incredible. They'd cr- really had recreated Middle Earth, and every single person on the crew and in the cast was was in this inspelled world. Where they were, you know, still hammering out swords in in a blacksmith forge and and recreating all these amazing costumes and and there was just craft and activity going on everywhere, and I, I was absolutely uh, beguiled by it. So when they said. we're going to do some companion books to go alongside the movies. I said, look no further. (laughs) I I am your walking Tolkien encyclopedia anyway, having done this job for years and years and and, uh, having been a Tolkien reader for nearly all my life. Um, And so I, I did them under a pseudonym because obviously as Jane Johnson publisher, you can't just sort of go also and then write the books as Jane Johnson publisher. So Jude Fisher was my pseudonym at that point. And so I spent months on end uh, on location with with the production, and it was um, New Zealand is the most beautiful country, Uh, big wide open spaces. Well, that lot like a lot of Canada, also beautiful, beautiful country. Um, and I'd never been before, but it looked so much like Middle Earth to me. And, and we were on, on location down in the far south of South Island in Fiordland, where you know it's it's just extraordinary landscape. And so I ended up going fishing with the cast, and you know just being another member of the fellowship. They they called me <laughs> the tenth <laughs> member of the fellowship at one point. So,
0: it so yeah. Incredible. I, it
1: was, it was a truly memorable time in my life and um, so many friends that I've kept still now 20 years on from from those few months there. It was incredible. You know, I've walked red carpets in Cannes and and in L.A. and and in London and Paris. It is just, you know, it's not something you, you are ever going to do again.
0: <laughs> so, yes, that,
1: that was a very different part of my life.
0: You're making us all very jealous uh, right now, Jane. (laughs) Um, So another, I'm sure, very interesting story is the story of your marriage to a Berber chef. Could you tell us more about this story? Uh,
1: Yes. Well, uh, it's all tied up with The Tenth Gift, actually, my first historical novel, um, which was Based on a true story, uh, in here in Cornwall, I can actually look out the window past you now into into Mounts Bay, where in 1625, three ships from North Africa sailed into the bay here and captured 60 men, women and children out of the church, uh, which I can almost see the church from here as well. They they sailed past St. Michael's Mount and uh, nobody stopped them. And they captured those people and they took them back to sell into the slave trade in North Africa, and including an ancestor of mine, Catherine Trugena. And it had been a, a bit of a family legend until I started uh, researching it and then found that she disappeared out of all the family records and parish records and everywhere else. There was no sign of her after her birth record. Um, And she would have been 19 years old in 1625, which just seemed like the most perfect starting point for a novel. So I went off to Morocco to research this story um, and all the history around it. Um, And the only person who could come with me on that trip was my rock climbing partner, Bruce. So I did a a deal with him that he would spend three weeks with me up in the north of Morocco doing all the research and and, uh, and watching my back while I took loads of photographs and met people, walked around all these extraordinary sites. And then we would go down to the far southwest of the country to do some rock climbing. And we got down there and uh, it immediately started to rain, which was incredibly unseasonal for Morocco at that time of year. Um, February is usually really dry there and sunny and it just rained for three days straight. (laughs) And poor Bruce was so looking forward to climbing that he pretty much memorised the entire uh, guidebook, (laughs) knew every (laughs) single route by heart by this stage. So he was almost literally climbing the walls by by the end of the third day. When we stumbled on this uh, little restaurant in the back streets of this Berber village that we were staying in, and uh, the door was opened by this extremely charismatic man in a turban and and local robes and i just turned to bruce and i said oh that's my that's my barbary pirate chief <laughs> and yes 6 months later reader i married him but so there was just this extraordinary connection between us i simply can't explain it uh anybody who's who's actually experienced love at first sight will understand but It is it defies all reason and logic that you can meet somebody so far away from a completely different culture and make that connection. And yet we we just kept on catching each other's eye that night. But he was busy. You know, he he was running the restaurant and bringing out extraordinary food to us. Um, And little did I know, I thought I had no idea how these things ran. I thought there must be women in the kitchen producing all the food and, you know, he would have you know, wife and mother and all the rest of it back there. But in fact, he was actually running back and and cooking and then bringing it out to this restaurant full of 30 people um, and, and still being the amazing show host for the for the evening. It was it was quite extraordinary. But then the next day, the weather cleared and Bruce and I went and did our big mountain climb. Um, but hadn't factored in that it had rained so heavily for three days. And of course, that had produced a lot of waterfalls and mudslides and all sorts on this on this mountain. And uh, we got up to the crux of the route. at about five o'clock in the evening. And when the sun goes down in Morocco at that time, it just drops like a stone. And when it does, there's no light at all. So there we were underneath this big roof uh, and unable to traverse along underneath it on these incredibly tiny little holes where you're literally on your fingertips um, because there was mud all over it it washed down out of the head wall and uh, I turned to to Bruce at the other end of the rope as he was belaying me across this and after a lot of swearing I, I said to him honestly Bruce I don't think this is going to go I think we're going to be stuck on this thing overnight and he said yes I think so too which was not really what I wanted to hear so I uh, skedaddled back to the belay point where he was and we uh, we abseiled down, we rappelled down into, into a gully, which was safer than where we were. And we spent a very, very uncomfortably cold night on that uh, bit of rock where there was snow just up above us. And it was incredibly cold. We were climbing in t-shirts and jeans and you know, you don't, it's not mountaineering the sort of climbing I do, it's technical rock climbing. So you climb light and fast generally. But at about um, 10 o'clock, I suddenly realized that I did actually have phone signal. And uh, so I used the only number that I had in my phone at this point, which was the restaurant down in the village where we'd made a booking. And uh, and I managed to get Abdul. And it was I mean, he's not usually there at that sort of time. So it, it was fate taking, a, t- taking uh, us in hand, I think. And uh, so I said to him, please, will you let people know that we're okay? You know, not to panic. We will get ourselves off in the morning. I know there are no rescue services here Um, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow, I hope. And uh, and so he spent his night walking up and down on his roof terrace, looking up towards this mountain, which is looks. It's called the Lion's Head, and it looks exactly like a Disney lion. It's got ears and a muzzle and 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 two eyes and a and a, and uh, and we were in the right eye. And uh, the whole story about the Lion's Head is that it, it is supposed to look o- over the village. And keep an eye out for all the women of the village when the men go away to the cities to work so to have a woman stuck on the mountain well soon it went around the entire village everybody knew all about it and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think they just sent up lots of hopes and prayers for us because we survived and I mean it was incredibly cold and very uncomfortable and I really did think at one point I was going to die because it started to rain and you can't you can't climb in the rain <laughs> Um, and we obviously didn't sleep very much, and you get a bit fuzzy-headed when you don't have enough sleep. And so, abseiling down for fifteen hundred feet in, in lots of different uh, lots of different abseils, having to put a, a knot in the end of the rope so that you didn't absent-mindedly go off the end throwing the ropes down into these chasms where you couldn't see where it was landing and going through all these thorn bushes. I was still picking thorns out of myself for three weeks afterwards.
0: <laughs> sounds we got, like this was a harrowing uh, experience, Jane, but uh, it, as you say, it it just sounds like uh, you were meant to find each other.
1: I, I think, you know, if it hadn't been for that drama it probably wouldn't have lit the spark that made us stay in contact when when we went back to, to London. And, in fact, what happened was the day after we got back, I mean, David, um, Abdul threw this amazing party for us that night, and then the next morning we, we were flying back we were driving back to Agadir and flying out of there and and uh, we were just doing some late minute shopping just before we went and he popped out of an alleyway and took my hand which is very forward for a Berber man to touch any woman let alone a foreign woman and he just put this ring on my finger and it was shaped like a tent and he said in French that you know i barely understood at this point because my French wasn't very good and he had no English. He said this is to keep you safe and to make sure nothing like that happens to you again. And we we exchanged phone numbers and then when I got back to London he phoned me every night.
0: <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I'll always we're always happy to hear good stories and happy stories these days with uh, everything going on in the world.
1: Absolutely. Yes, yeah, no, it's it's lovely. So here we are, fifteen years later, sixteen years now, coming up. That's
0: fantastic! Congratulations. So, for our audience, I would like to uh, just share um, from the book. I'll just uh, share a little bit about the story, if you don't mind. A broken family, a house of secrets, an entrancing tale of love and courage set during the Second World War. After Rebecca's mother dies, she must sort through her empty flat and come to terms with her loss. As she goes through her mother's mail, she finds a handwritten envelope. In it is a letter that will change her life forever. Olivia, her mother's elderly cousin, needs help to save her beloved home. Rebecca immediately goes to visit Olivia in Cornwall, only to find a house full of secrets, treasures in the attic, and a mysterious tunnel Leading from the cellar to the sea, and Olivia nowhere to be found. As it turns out, the old woman is stuck in hospital with no hope of being discharged until her house is made habitable again. Rebecca sets to work, to work uh, restoring the house to its former glory, but as she peels back the layers of paint and grime, she uncovers even more buried secrets, secrets from a time when the Second World War was raging, When Olivia was a young woman and when both romance and danger lurked around every corner. A sweeping and utterly spellbinding tale of a young woman's courage in the face of war and the lengths to which she'll go to protect protect those she loves against the most unexpected of enemies." So that was a mouthful. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, But Jane, this is a fantastic uh, enthralling novel uh, very rich. Um, I love the way that uh, the story is written um, from two different uh, time periods. Um, how did you come up with the idea of exploring uh, the mother, the daughter, uh, the aunt?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's probably the most personal of, of my novels because um, my mother was going through something similar, uh, just Prior to my getting the idea for this, um, she was in and out of hospital having had pneumonia. And uh, they wouldn't discharge her until she'd had her, her house adapted for, for living, you know, more safely, which meant an entire new bathroom and all sorts of other things going on. And I just thought, you know, I wonder what would happen you know if this if this situation uh, occurred to a distant relative not just not a daughter you know to somebody who didn't know the person but who was their last hope really in the world Um, and Olivia is nothing like my mother I have to say she Olivia is much more eccentric and obstreperous than my mother ever ever was Um, but they do they do share a certain spirit of of that time Um, my mother spent her wartime years uh, part of them down in Cornwall and and in this area and so she had a lot of stories to tell about um, life during wartime Um, and then I also got talking to a lot of the old people in the village, you know, who were around about the same age as my mother. In, in fact, in, including one chap who said he remembered dancing with her at a tea dance. <laughs> Um, in Penzance across, just across the bay, which I just found extraordinary because although we're Cornish, we don't come from this particular bit of Cornwall. Uh, and I just thought, what, a, what an absolutely wonderful thing that there should be a connection between her and and, and this old man. And, and he, he asked after her every time he saw me in the street, but they all had so many good stories to tell. And I thought I usually write historical fiction that goes a lot further back than, than second world war. But I, I felt that I needed to to capture those memories um, and honour them in some way before they they went. Um, And in fact, uh, my mother died in 2017 and two of the uh, old chaps that I talked to about their wartime experiences, they've gone as well. And, you know, you don't realise just how fragile our our communal memories are of these times. And it's it's so important that we capture them and, and uh, keep hold of them. Uh, so that was partly why I, I wrote this story. Um, and just partly, I love the idea of old, decrepit houses and the lives they have seen inside them and the lives they have lived. And every house has a story to tell, I think and uh, and i've known some really old houses rickety old houses down here and and it's amazing what you find in some of these places so i just put all these different things together and and alongside you know the beautiful countryside i live in here and the whole maritime history and and all the all the folklore and it it's a rich area in which to live when it comes to a life of the imagination so it was a fun book to write and,
0: is the is the uh, house in the book is it based on an actual home or is it sort of pieces of homes that you've come across in Cornwall
1: that's exactly
0: how it works yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. and as you know as with i think if you ask most writers about their characters you'll you'll find that we we just cherry pick from, okay. <laughs> from life and from and from experience and so nobody is ever is ever based on any particular person and i think although the house has a very particular personality in the book i think it's actually it is pieced together from several houses that i know including my grandmother's house when i was growing up which seemed so huge and, and strange to me when i was there so uh yeah uh, lots of that one had uh that one didn't have the tunnels, but it had all the falling down bits and the outside toilet full of spiders. <laughs> um, but I grew up in a house uh, further down the coast, which did have a smuggler's tunnel to to the beach. So, yeah, they um, I put them all together.
0: <laughs> okay, I won't say too much about that, but the cover here is very <laughs> an important part of the novel. I won't reveal why, but it is quite important. Um, can you tell us about the character uh, of Becky and how she came about? Um, was any yeah. of what's written about her, her journey going through uh, breast cancer, um, was that based on anything that happened in, in your family, in your life, or she's just a fictional character?
1: Well, she's a fictional character, but, I'd, you know, you hit a certain age and people around you are getting ill. And uh, it it was quite surprising to me just how many people I knew who'd been through one form of cancer or another, and how many conversations we'd had about how they felt about it and coming out the other side and being scarred and feeling not not the woman they were. Um, And then how some of them flourished wonderfully afterwards and just battled through and um, were really lucky. And so I, I took a, a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, conversations and experiences as well, and put them into Becky. And Becky Becky is an artist who has stopped making art. Um, she's a lost soul at the beginning of this book. She's just been through the breast cancer. She's with an unreliable partner. Her her partner is has cheated on her while she was undergoing chemotherapy um which is just a terrible thing and and she's feeling very worthless and her mother didn't tell her that she had cancer and was and that it was terminal because she felt that Becky was already going through too much with her own cancer and was too fragile and so when her mother dies Becky's not had a chance to say goodbye or to or to round the circle in any sort of way. And so she feels more useless than ever. And so to find the cry for help from Olivia in her mother's mail, I think gave her a chance to redeem herself in a way, almost redeeming herself in her lost mother's eyes to prove that she is actually strong enough and capable enough to take on this, this huge task and to be helpful to somebody else. And... I think it's very important when you write a book that your character has a journey to go on. Um, And with Becky, her journey is to go from feeling worthless and broken to being a whole human being again at the end and to be much enriched by her relationship with the old lady. And for Olivia as well, you know, when you first encounter Olivia, she's she's just a bit of a monster, actually. But um, what the book does is show you why she's become a monster. But also, I hope by the end of it, um, she's been humanized as well. And she and Becky, it's almost a book about their relationship, although there are other important relationships in the book, but in a way, the key relationship is, is between Olivia and, and Rebecca um, and crossing the divide of the generations. And I, you know, it's it's so easy um, for us to not see old people for who they are, actually. We only see the surface. Um and and forget what extraordinary rich, brave, vibrant lives they have led, um, and that they've been young, you know, and had extraordinary times and adventures. And so I very much wanted to write a book that honoured that generation as well, because I think they were a remarkable and are a remarkable generation.
0: Yes, indeed. I definitely agree with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, an intriguing character I found, Rosemary, who's Mary at uh-huh. times? <laughs>
1: Yes, no, I wanted her to be a bit of an enigma. Now, you you first see her as a child. Well, you don't first see her as a child, but you don't realise who she is. And I'm not going to give the game away <laughs> on this one. But um, yes, she is an evacuated child who turns up during the Second World War. Children were sent down here to be safe from the London Blitz and uh, and the bombings in other cities as well. Um, they were sent to uh, safe places which weren't undergoing bombing, and they were just put on trains and packed off to strangers to live live in their houses without without knowing anything about them. And you know, uh, extraordinary to have that happen to you. And so you can imagine just how how traumatized you might be as a child by this experience, especially if you land in a house where you you're not really wanted. Um, and I think this particular character comes with plenty of baggage of her own as well, because I I don't think her mother ever really wanted her either, and it's made her insecure, and insecure people can be quite horrible sometimes, (laughs) and and so I'm afraid she's not the nicest character, but um, yes, she also has a story to be revealed, and and to some extent redeemed by the end, although... um, (laughs) Um, To some extent. I had had quite a lot of fun with her. (laughs) I wasn't (laughs) sure sure my editor was going to let me get away with some of
0: that. Um, I love some of the details in your books uh, about the the car. Um, You know, the, the, the car that everyone later in the story... It it seems to be any time whether it's uh, in the 40s or later on uh, when Olivia is uh, much older and it it gets taken out, this beautiful car always gets noticed. Can you tell us about the Flying Eight?
1: Yeah, the Flying Eight. Well, my father was a big car enthusiast and actually he used to be a racing driver before the war. So I grew up uh, surrounded by cars and so I've always loved them and always found them fascinating. And I just wanted a car that wasn't too flashy, but had real style to it. And and the standard Flying Eight is is has beautiful long wings and and uh, a, run, a running board and and a long bonnet and and uh, inside all beautifully tricked out in in leather. And I've seen I've seen one in the life, and they're just beautiful cars. I love period cars from from that time. They're they're so elegant. <laughs> um but the idea that you might have this treasure in a garage and it would still work I just love that (laughs) (laughs) because goodness knows during lockdown my very modern (laughs) expensive normal car has broken so many times because they depend on their batteries so much that the idea of of a car that you can just wind up (laughs) is is (laughs) one go and start it with the starting handle and um and so, like, yes, no, I contacted the Flying Eight Club. There is actually. Oh, enthusiasts club who who um, specialize in doing up these cars and they have meets and all sorts and so they were wonderfully helpful to me in explaining the starting mechanism and how it was one of the first cars that had a push button start as well as the starting handle for for emergencies and it was just wonderful to to get the details from them and 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 know that you're getting it right as well and oh, and i nice. love I think cars uh, for women uh, are a sort of symbol of freedom as well. If you can drive, you feel that you can do anything and go anywhere. I know that in my life, I've I've felt like that. And uh, the idea of sixteen-year-old Olivia being left alone at the house with with access to this vehicle was um, was. Too much to resist. And (laughs) I I loved the idea of her being able to sneak. She'd only had a couple of driving lessons with her father, you know, in very quiet lanes, but um off she off she went in the flying eight. (laughs) I thought that would be great fun.
0: Another very interesting character, um I will call I will call it a character in the book, is um the parrot. Could you tell us (laughs) a story about the parrot and how he got integrated? Uh, and, and found an
1: important <laughs> place within this novel. Yes, no, Gabriel, Gibral, he's a monster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: it's interesting because, you know, I know that it's a stereotype that foul-mouthed parrots, you know, who just who swear horribly and uh, have been trained by sailors to swear horribly. Um, but it's true, I'm afraid, <laughs> that, uh, that that there are parrots like this, And uh, they do seem remarkably clever and they're incredibly long lived as well, which I think is quite spooky in a way that, you know, you can have a pet that's going to outlast you. Um, It was interesting in the cottage that I owned before the house that I'm in now, I was told that uh, the woman who lived in it was a lay preacher and she was obviously a, a woman of God but she had this foul-mouthed parrot, so it was like an alter-ego in a way. It would say all the things that she wasn't allowed to say. Um, And she used to put it outside in the lane outside the cottage, in its cage, um, where it would just abuse passers-by in the most filthy fashion. (laughs) And I just love the idea of this. (laughs) This horrible, horrible bird. Which also, you know, Olivia lets fly loose around the house. You can imagine the state of the house when when poor Becky arrives after you've had a, a free-flying parrot going around and around. Uh just horrible. But um but I love Gabriel to bits. he was the most fun to write um and it gives you just a slightly different perspective on the events and you can you can, as a writer that's that can be used to great effect sometimes it's it's huge fun to be able to use a, a perspective like this and uh, and also i i just think as a child if you encounter a bird like that you never forget them um Becky remembers encountering that bird when she was about seven or eight. And certainly I would never forget a bird like that. And I'd always want one if I met one. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: How did you come up with some of the different character traits of Olivia's mother, who is a very distinguished, fashionable woman, but also has her personality flaws, (laughs) I could say. (laughs) yeah no i've um i've
1: met I've met women like her. She I think a lot of women had children because they felt they should have children when in a marriage, but never had a very maternal instinct. And in a way, my mother was a bit like that herself in that um she felt a bit thwarted by being um by having to raise children she would have liked to have had adventures and uh, she had a career before she had me and my sister. And I think she would much rather actually have continued having her career and adventures than actually raising children. Um, and I like the idea that because she owns, she's very French, um, not my mother, Karen, Olivia's mother. Uh, and as a result, that gives her anotherness in the book, yes. which gives her a certain uh, personality distance, but also then enables a certain amount of geographic distance, because she gets she has war work to do, and because Olivia's sixteen, she just leaves her to it, and off she goes. And Olivia gets the odd phone call from from London or wherever her mother is, um, and it again it gives you another. Another uh, perspective on the war because you're you're hearing about different aspects of, of life at that time. But also I always loved those stories as a child where children were left on their own or escaped, you know, Enid yes. Light and Arthur Ransom, Swallows and Amazons, all that sort of thing where children had to sort of make a you know make their own way. And certainly I was raised in a in a very similar sort of fashion in Cornwall. Uh, you you would if it was not school time your parents would just put you outside and say off you go (laughs) you can go to the beach or wherever and you wouldn't come back till tea time and they didn't you know they expected you to just look after yourself and and uh, and get on with whatever you did and nobody ever seemed to worry about children's safety at that point so we we did all sorts (laughs) so I like I like the idea of that sort of freedom for Olivia, and then for that freedom to be curtailed by the arrival of the housekeeper and, and the small child, um, you know, that would be something It would certainly frustrate me if if that had been me.
0: Yes, so Olivia at some point is pretty much left on her own uh, to take care of Rosemary, and um, and officers come by to look around because something has happened. Um, and is, is this something that would happen where um, officers may be sent um, sort of to stand by and, and take a look if, if children or teenagers were, they, they kind of got wind that they were alone in the house, that it was only young women who were living there?
1: I, d- I don't think particularly they were that bothered about it. I think the, the main point about about that part of the story is that two prisoners of war have disappeared from, from the farm. Um, and down here, we did have prisoners of war stationed in the fields to help with the uh, producing crops to feed the nation, uh, dig for victory and all that sort of thing. Um, and we have we're in the middle of potato growing country here. So uh, that was very much. And they, they grew all sorts of crops. Everything was dug up and crops were grown here. So they needed workers because obviously all the able-bodied men were at war. So they used prisoners of war and internees. Um, and in the story, two of them escape. And so the officers are going door to door, seeing if they can... Find out if anybody's seen them, or if anybody's hiding them, or if they're being held with menaces, or whatever's going on. So that's that's what's happening there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, we won't reveal too too much more about that. So. A beautiful aspect of the novel is uh, Olivia's uh, romance, I could call it, illicit affair to others in the novel. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that story without giving away too much of the novel?
1: Well, I just think at 16, um, you know, it's a febrile time at the best of times, but 16 in the middle of a war. Uh, where there are just no social mores in the way that you're used to, there are no constraints upon you, and you're living pretty much alone in a a house to yourself, Um, you know, anything could happen, really. And especially with an imaginative girl, as Olivia is, she's a budding artist, and and Olivia, the adult, becomes a really quite well-known artist for a while. But as a budding artist, she has an eye for detail and uh, a huge imagination. And so when she sees one of the prisoners of war who looks like nobody else she's ever seen before, she's just swept away in her own mind about who he might be and and stories that he might inhabit. And, And so when she actually gets to meet him personally, it's uh, you know, it's a really tempestuous relationship, short but tempestuous. Yes. And and I just think that a lot of people had very passionate relationships for a very short period of time during the war because you just didn't know what was going to happen to you from one day to the next. And so you had to, you felt that you had to live your life to the fullest, and that all the old rules didn't apply. During this time, and you know, we're living through quite strange times as it is now, and I yes. think there's uh, there are parallels, you know, between between then and now. Except now we're not allowed to touch anybody, so <laughs> yes, and we're quite not. So it's it's uh, but I think the claustrophobic aspect of the book, which is partly because the war draws a big are pulling down over, over small parts of the country and you can't travel anywhere and you can't do anything. I think there are definite parallels between then and now. Um, and, and that was interesting because obviously I wrote this well before the pandemic came along, but reading passages from it and talking to people about it, I'm, I'm finding all sorts of little touchstones in it all, all over the place, which is quite strange, really.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting to look back and, and see those parallels now. Another um, interesting aspect that I enjoyed uh, was the description of the time early in the novel when um, that Olivia spends with her dad, um, he gives her the camera as a gift for her, her, for her upcoming yeah. 16th birthday, the Leica camera. Um, yeah. is this a camera that you've dealt with because it felt very personal when I was reading those
1: parts <laughs> um no I have never used a Leica my father had a Leica though and I remember what it looked like and I remember its leather case it's burnished leather case it was a very beautiful object and he was he was very possessive of it so I was never allowed to touch it <laughs> but that, that's where that came from um and he took photographs and had a dark room and and it was very fascinating to me to see you know to see him use it but again it's a, it's very freeing i think for a 16 year old to to lay hands on a on an incredible piece of equipment like this you know i mean now we're all so used to having our, our mobile phones our cell phones and wonderful digital cameras that we can just click and, and have an instant photograph but the process of actually printing a photograph at that time you know, it's just so. It's a craft. It's a it's a real piece of craft, and and I think it's fascinating. And also, because of that, and because of negatives not looking like photographs, and you can again play with secrets and and images in a in a way that you, you know, it's not obvious. And uh, and what with that and the hidden paintings around the house as well, as they all sort of add up to a little jigsaw of secrets.
0: Yes, uh, so there is quite a bit of art in this book. Um, so when we meet Becky, she is sort of not in the great, greatest relationship, but with an artist. And as you said, she herself is an artist, but hasn't really been giving it uh, her all. And uh, so her long-lost uh, her mother's, her cousin... Um she's an artist so there's there are a lot of um, sort of uh, instances where we're talking about art about paintings about an elusive artist who is this artist um, is this something that's present in your family are there a lot of artists um
1: my husband's an artist and uh, and he's he produces extraordinary paintings but um, no my my parents were not artists and I was never an artist but this area of Cornwall is very famous for the Newlyn School of Art and the St Ives School of Art so it's uh, there are so many writers and artists and painters and potters around here it it does seem to be an area that that attracts uh, imaginative people and so I'm surrounded by artists and I know several uh, and it seemed to me to be another way to uh, contact, make contact with the area and with the beautiful coast and with, you know, the views that we have here and the light and um, and just the essence of Cornwall,
0: really. It does sound like you have the perfect uh, landscape and seascape <laughs> for for beautiful paintings and art to be produced.
1: It's a pretty place, it must be said, yeah
0: yes well thank you so much uh jane uh, for taking the time uh to talk to us today so before i just open it up and see if uh, any of our listeners have any questions for you could you give us a sneak peek on what you're working on next
1: ah (laughs) well it's another cornish novel it doesn't have a title yet I'm about seventy seventy thousand words into it, and so on the downhill stretch now. Um, oh gosh, it's a difficult one to to talk about, actually. Although there's another uh, remote house involved in this one, and uh, but this time uh, a refugee family, and it's set in 1954. A refugee family who are Polish, who've come just before the war for having fled Poland. Uh, they end up down here in Cornwall. So it's another, it's a sort of an outsider's novel because Cornwall can be uh, quite a difficult place to live if you're not of the community here. And so I wanted to give that aspect of uh, of the experience of being down here, but then also add into it quite a lot of folklore and and you know it can be a bit of an uncanny place to live sometimes some of the remote areas of Cornwall have all sorts of stories attached to them lots of legends and, and mythology and uh, and I wanted to see how that would the interaction between a family who don't have the background in all that all that stuff um, how they come into contact with it and how it affects them and it's um, so there's there's Magdalena, who is in her forties, an extremely elegant, a real fashion plate, and very proper, and her daughter Mila, uh, who uh, has, well, she's been extracted from uh, an, an unfortunate relationship, rather against her will, uh, and uh, and her her daughter Janie, Janeska, uh, has is coming up to five. Uh, which is a really interesting age I think children of that age live in their heads so much and uh, and they're very open to everything so she is very much a conduit for everything that's going on and so I've got three generations of women in this one huge house which has been nobody's really ever wanted to stay there for some reason <laughs> okay,
0: <It's got> an, <laughs> probably uh, a secret in there somewhere. There's a few
1: secrets in there. It's got a bit of an atmosphere. Um, it's kind of a, a a house of ill repute in some ways, in that the locals are a bit wary of it, and and it has stories attached to it. And I I'm having fun with this with this one it's again different and thank goodness it's not a contemporary story because i think I, I i found it hard enough to write during this last year as it is yes but thank goodness it was set in the past because i don't think i could have connected with it at all otherwise i think we've all been thrown up in the air so much um that uh it's it's been very hard i i know a lot of people who haven't been able to read over the, over the last year let alone create um you know, it's very, it's very hard to keep living your life when your parameters are so unsure, you don't know what's going to happen.
0: So how has the pandemic on your uh, end affected your writing and your career? Because uh, we're with you today from from our perspective, it's on a it's kind of been a silver lining, because we're reaching out to people we probably (laughs) wouldn't have had the opportunity to speak to
1: but isn't i mean there are lots of upsides actually because here we are you know yes. and we have we have had to use these te- new technologies and i think it's brilliant being able to do this you know i mean author tours they take a lot of time and a lot of expense to set up um, and yet you can just do an event like this and it's it's wonderful to make connections. I mean, you know, this is the this is the highlight of my week. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Ours as well. My, <laughs> the rest of my week is is taken up by by constantly being online and, and doing my emails and, and editing and, and all the rest of it, and then walking up to my allotment every day for an hour. Awesome. So um yeah so I, thank goodness I've I've had that garden for for this year and I only got it just before we locked down uh, a year ago in so it's been an absolute blast That's great. <laughs> That's it, great.
0: And we can hear this the, the seagulls I think uh, Jane
1: probably <laughs> they are now. <laughs> But now that now that twilight has fallen, they should shut up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, for us, it's quite nice because we're we're not just near the water. So it's nice to to hear. <laughs> I can almost smell the salty water.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so how have you found the lockdown? Have, have you been locked
0: down in, in Montreal? Uh, yes, in our particular case, uh, the city of Cote saint Luke, it, it does have a, a pretty high uh, amount of cases. So so we're taking things very slowly. Uh, people are still um, using the library services. Um, they're coming to pick up their books and their magazines, uh, no contact kind of service outdoors. But we're doing a lot of uh, virtual events as well. So we're, we're, you know, we're making the most... Of it, we're we're trying to cover as many angles as we can, and people seem quite happy that we're doing that. Trying our best to keep everyone safe.
1: Oh, I think books are a wonderful escape during this sort of event. I mean, I think is here we're in a, in a village of just under five thousand people, and the community has really come into its own we've we've had a little traveling library going round to all the elderly people's houses so that they can choose books to read and we've all been giving spare books to it and 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 that sort of thing has been lovely and I must say you know libraries are just they were the life my lifeblood when I was growing up my highlight of every week was going to the local library and coming away using everybody else's tickets. <laughs> <So> I <I'd> come <laughs> away with a huge stack of books every every weekend, uh, it's just brilliant.
0: Well, that's that's always nice to hear, Jane. I, I think our viewers are a little bit shy today, but maybe just in closing, I'll ask you to share any tips you have for some uh, prospective writers that are listening in and that or too shy to ask you, where do I begin? What are some of the key rules I should know?
1: There are no rules. I think that's the most important thing to know that nobody can tell you how to write or what to write. You've got to find a way to write. That's the most important thing is if you're going to write, you write. And everybody, I know a lot of people who said, oh, I'm not really a writer. I'm not published. I, you know, I just do a bit, you know, in my spare time. I'm sorry. If you do writing in your spare time, you are a writer. And really, it's about perseverance in all aspects of what you do. Um, You've just got to finish it. If you start a story, finish it. Even if you hate it, even if when you come to the end, you think it's the worst thing ever, you then put it away for a little while and then you go back to it a few weeks later. And it's like reading something by someone else entirely. And uh, and you will just start editing it and changing it. And I think you should never be afraid to edit and rewrite and rework it because it's nuts and bolts books books have made in nuts and bolts and you can you can just take them apart put them back together and not lose it and especially now that we have we have computers you can keep all your versions so nothing is ever yes. lost if you save them carefully <laughs> Um, and you know that's that's a gift because when I started writing it it was on a typewriter and I was a terrible typist as well and you just had loads of bits of paper around and if you lost your manuscript you lost everything that you had done so we're very lucky nowadays to be able to save it all so easily and, and safely yeah so I just think really just Do whatever makes you feel happiest when when you're writing. Don't let anybody tell you not to do what you're doing. Um, Writing groups can be extremely useful when they're being supportive, but if they're being critical of you, that can be really damaging. And actually, the most important thing for a writer is to grow a hide. You grow a thick skin and, and... if you feel that it's right, you stick with it. And no matter what anybody else says, if you feel that you're writing the thing you want to write and the way you want to write it, you just stick with it. And then after that, it's very much a matter of perseverance.
0: Solid advice. Thank you, Jean. I see a question did pop up now in our chat. How long does it take to write a novel? How do you start it uh, if you have a story inside? but have never written a book. So that's one of the questions.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, all stories take their own amount of time to write. Um, And some people write really quickly. And some people like me do not. I mean, partly that's because I'm working pretty much full time as well. So I only get to write at weekends, which is, you know, that is in itself a difficult thing. I think if you get if you're able to, You get down the bones of your idea as fast as possible uh, so that you you know the shape of what you're going to write. You don't need to know all the details of how you get to point from point A to point Z. But as long as you know the vague shape of your story, then you get as much of that down just as an outline as possible, just to give yourself guidance. You don't have to stick to it. That's the other thing that I should say is that when you start writing, odd things happen and odd odd connections are made and you suddenly find your story going off in different directions, don't worry about it. That's actually a good thing. Um, and just follow them, see where they go. Because usually when your subconscious takes you off down these little lanes, they're, they're actually the most important routes to where you're going. Um, and I just keep doing it every day. You just have to keep writing, keep writing, keep writing and get into the habit of it. Even if you write rubbish, you know sometimes you sit down and you can't think of anything to write just write anything just write absolutely anything from any of the different characters point of views and it will get you going you can scrap it later nothing's ever lost you can just throw that away keep it in a different file and your your brain will find its way back to where you need to be if you keep doing that I'm very sure of it okay
0: thank you it takes me two years to write an office basically Mm. Uh, And another question that came in is, who is your favorite writer? And a thank you for answering the first one. (laughs) That's a very, that's
1: an impossible, impossible question. Or
0: perhaps (laughs) some of them that you quite enjoy or influenced you. It's, um, you know,
1: because it changes all the time because you're reading new books all the time. Um, My favorite ones of classics that I come back to time and again I would say. Let me think of some of my favourite historical novelists. Are Mary Renault, who wrote uh, some extraordinary ancient Greek stories, and she has, she had an absolute skill of balancing really rigorous uh, research with being able to tell an incredibly involving story with characters that you really believed in. And I think that's that's quite a, a remarkable skill. I have to say during lockdown, when I was in much need of comfort to start, to start with, I found myself going back and listening to audio books of Georgette Heyer. <laughs> they were tremendously comforting because you knew the formula. Um, and you knew probably where the story was going to go but um, they were just tremendously entertaining and 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 lovely to to listen to um i love non-fiction i love travel uh, narratives anything like that you know the road to oxiana and bruce chatwin and um beautiful writing of of that nature and i love people's um adventure stories you know into thin air and and uh, tales like that um Oh, and so what are many. you
0: reading right now, Jane? If 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 you have something on your book stand,
1: yeah, no. Well, um, the book I'm I'm reading right now, this minute. Well, not right now, this minute, but um, at night, I am reading uh, Emma Stonex's *The Lamplighters*, which is about um about light a uh, light, lighthouse keepers. Um, it's a sort of mystery novel about lighthouse keepers, which is you know another of those fascinating. Sort of subjects of loneliness and and remoteness and secrets and all the rest of it, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm about halfway through. Um, what another, I mean, I've read all the Hilary Mantels over the last mm-hmm. year, and um, she's just a non She is extraordinary. Um, oh, I've, I read just about everything I've I've read I read procedurals I read crime novels I, I I love that sort of thing I love a good thriller from time to time and I've read all the um Robert Galbraith the uh, JK Rowling as others as a thriller writer you know they've been quite fun to to read so yeah no I've I've got a very wide remit and I, I will read just about everything
0: Last question for you, Jane, and then I'll let you off the hook. Do you write plays as well?
1: No. (laughs) I don't write plays and I don't write poetry. It's the two areas that I don't don't go anywhere near. No.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jane. Uh, It was great to spend some time with you. And again, I'm so sorry for the technical issues, but we did make it work.
1: (laughs) thank you so much i really enjoyed talking to you and i'm so glad you enjoyed the book yes a
0: beautiful book thank you so much jane and uh for those listening in i am pretty sure we have a wait list but it is the seagate by jane johnson so put your name down for it and hopefully you'll get it in not too long thank you everybody thank you jane thank you have a great rest of your day thank you for listening to the code st luke podcast today we launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit codestluke.org. Have a great day.